So 34 years ago, I was walking up the steps of this platform. And actually, earlier that morning, I was supposed to go on a ski trip with the college and career group here at Calvary. But I was so sick. I had a cold that I kept trying to get over with, and I was getting worse and worse and worse. And I hadn't had a chance to rent my skis or my ski boots or any of the equipment for this college and career um, um, uh, thing that was going up to um, Mammoth, and all my friends were going. I was so excited about it, and I just couldn't get everything together to be able to go. And I wanted to go, and I was paying my own money to go on this trip because my dad wasn't sure that he trusted me on the slope. So he said, it's got to be your money. So I had invest my own money, and now I was about to lose that money. And I woke up on Thursday morning, and my dad said, honey, you cannot go on this trip. You are too sick. And so he called up and told them, because they were all at the church, getting in the buses, Cheryl is way too sick to go on this trip. And I looked at him, and I said, what, what am I going to do? And he said, well, you're just going to get better. Within an hour, I was better. An hour, I was better. And they're on their way on that bus to Mammoth. And here I am, and I'm better. But I looked at my dad, and I said, now what I'm going to do, it's Valentine's Day, and I don't even have a Valentine. He said, come to church tonight, and God will give you one. Okay, so that was the promise of that Thursday night at church. I come, and I had met Brian Broderson on a couple of different occasions, but he'd always had a different girl with him, just letting you in on a secret. And I didn't, well, one turned out to be a sister, so that was okay. But as I was walking up, we started talking. I saw him at church, and he said, do you know that girl that you keep seeing with me with? And I said, yes. He goes, she's not my girlfriend. I just invited her to church, and now she's kind of you know, following me all around. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And he said, yeah. And he said, um, you wouldn't want to go out sometime, would you? Valentine's Day, 34 years ago. And I said, oh, I would love to go out with you. That would be great. And he started walking out that door, and I'm thinking, great. That guy does not have my phone number, and nobody's going to give him Chuck Smith's phone number. It's just not going to happen. There goes my Valentine out that door. And he turned right before he got to the door, and I was about almost where I'm standing here because I was going back to the office to see my dad. And he turned around, and he said, I already have your phone number. And I said, how did you get that? And he said, I wrestled somebody for it. And then he walked out the door. And I literally floated back to the office, and my mom's in there, and I said, the greatest guy in the world just asked me on a date. And she's like, the greatest guy? And she goes running out of the office to see if she could see him before he leaves. (laughs) But I was, you know, thinking about there are are times when it, it seems like everything's going wrong. I wanted that ski trip. That was my will. I had put good hard cash down for that ski trip. $150 of my own money on that ski trip. I wanted to go on that ski trip. I wanted to be with my friends. And I remember thinking, Lord, this is not right. This is not fair. Something's going wrong here. Who gave me these germs? I was looking around for the sick person 
who shared their sick germs with me. And I was, you know, upset. And it seemed like everything was, was closing in. And then to go to church, you know, because God has something he's up to. And to meet the man who would become the love of my life, the father of my children, the man of my dreams, my best friend, my cohort in mischief, (laughs) and my soulmate, to be asked out by him. And it was the beginning of the rest of my life. But God knows what he's doing. You know, too often when a door closes or we can't do something or it seems like we're immobilized and the walls are closing in, we tend to conclude, I must be out of the Lord's will. We especially do that when we lose $150 or lose any amount of money. This cannot be God. I mean, there are times that we measure the will of the Lord by money, right? If it's $10, it's God. If it's $150, it's not. Or by loss. But that's not the way to do it. When roads are blocked and there's impasses, we're ready to resign. And suppose the devil is closing the doors, We're always looking to blame our problems on someone. I call this the John chapter 9 principle. When the disciples saw that blind man who was begging, immediately their response to Jesus was, who sinned that this man was born blind? Whose fault is it that we've got this sightless situation? Whose fault is it? And Jesus said, no one sinned but that the glory of God might be revealed. This is an opportunity for God. But do we look at trials that way? Mm -mm. When we go through a trial, we say, Lord, what did I do wrong? Don't you? Aren't you like those disciples? Is it I, Lord? Am I the problem? Was it something I thought? Was it something I did Is there a secret sin that I don't know about? That I'm in this place? Is there something I should be doing that I'm not doing? We are so quick to condemn ourselves. It's true. We're women. We're always ready to condemn ourselves and say, I'm not measuring up. I'm insufficient. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done this or this or that. I remember when my, um, my one daughter just didn't want to walk with the Lord for a time. And I remember I would go to sleep at night, or I would try to go to sleep at night, but for an hour I would play the recording of everything I did wrong as a mother. And I can honestly stand before you and say, I was not a perfect mother. Hyperactive, yes. Perfect, no, but when you're hyperactive and speed is a virtue to you, not the drug, the rapidity, you, you have this thing of kind of offending everybody. You know, when you're moving fast, you're always breaking, spilling, pushing. You know, I, and I had this daughter who was so, um, for lack of a better word, slow. Not slow in mind, but she just 
did everything very carefully. She's a perfectionist. And you know, I'm just like, let's get it done. Looks good enough. Out the door. And, and here we are. And I, I, I just would condemn myself over and over again. And I remember sitting with her and saying, you know, honey, is it because when you were three, I didn't get all the bumps out of your hair when, you know, I was combing it and you were so upset over it? Was it that I made you go to a quilt show when you were six and you hated it? You know, and I could think of all the things I had done wrong. And she said, no, it's none of those things, mom. I just want to see what the world has for me. I was like, I don't know if that's better or not. Got to think about that one. But you know, we're so quick as women to, to view closed doors, to view prisons, trials as intruders, wastes, obstacles, or proof of our own sin, shortcomings, or omissions. So it's just something that we do. We conclude too quickly that we are out of the Lord's will when we, or that we made a wrong turn on the road, or that there is some secret sin that has brought this hardship on us. And we must search out, eliminate, and take inventory, or even that this is the end. You know, there's a doctrine called positive confession that, you know, if anything goes wrong in your life, it's because there's sin or, you know, something in your life. And when Brian had chronic fatigue for three months, I was at the market one day and this man approached me and he said, you know, Brian just needs to confess all the sin in his life and then he'll be healed. And I said to this man, what do you think we did day six of this thing? I mean, the first thing I do when I'm hurting or anything goes wrong is I confess every sin I can think of and my neighbors too. I mean, it's just something you do. It's an automatic response. But it wasn't a secret sin. It was a time of learning that God wanted to do something. You know, I know we talk about seeing the, the cup half full or half empty, but you can live your life Like the devil is after you and always attacking you. Or you can live your life as, wow, God's allowed this into my life for a purpose. And every bad thing has a purpose, a golden purpose from God. You can live your life one way or the other. But I'm going to tell you the truth is all things, all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Never do we hear that the devil wins, do we? Never do we read in the Bible about the devil's victory. Well, maybe you've got a short-term victory, but even God turned what happened in Eden around for his glory and his purposes and to give us a Messiah and proof of his love. Are you going to see the devil dogging your heels? Are you going to look at life as, Lord, what glorious purpose are you going to bring through this situation? Sometimes the direction of the Lord appears to be by trial and error. It comes by trying every door and seeing which one is unlocked. 
years ago, my daughter was going to rent this house and um, they were supposed to move in in two days and she wanted to show us the house that they were going to move into. And we were trying all the doors of this house and everything was locked. And we went to this sliding glass door and I said, you know, let me just try this, this trick that my dad taught me for breaking into houses. I know you didn't know that about Chuck Smith, but the, he was a man of many talents. And I started like um, shaking, doing this thing that he'd showed me with the sliding glass door. And the next thing you knew, it opened. And my grandsons, I won their respect like crazy. They're like, our grandma knows how to break into houses. You know, two thumbs up. I'd never tried it before, but I thought, you know, I watched my dad do this. I mean, I'm just going to see. I remember telling him that night at dinner, dad, I, I broke into a house. He's like, you did? I'm like, yeah, with that trick you showed me. Good girl. You know, you're my daughter. <laughs> but you know, sometimes it comes by just trying the doors and sometimes you have to jiggle it a little bit. But we've got this idea, if, if it's not already open, I don't know if I should go in it. But you know, the Bible says, ask, seek, knock. There is a proactivity on our part to ask, to seek, or knock. And when we ask, we hear no. We're like, okay, sorry. <laughs> you know, we seek and we're like, oh, I don't see it. Like a man looking in the refrigerator. <laughs> there is no butter. No, you have to open the little, you know, <laughs> butter window. Or you might have to move the milk aside, but it is in there. I don't know what it is with men in refrigerators. They open it and if they don't see it right away, they conclude it's not in there and never has been. <laughs> it's another story. Never trust a man in a refrigerator. That's my, that's my slogan. But you know, we're, we're, and then we're too quick to conclude it's not there and not to go the extra. And then it says, knock on the door. If we see a closed door, we just, oh, it's a closed door. But there is a time to just knock and it might just open up. And this is what we see with Paul. Well, first of all, we see him going back to the churches that he had been to before. And he goes first to Derby and Lystra. And here's an open door. Here's a young man that is commended to him, this young man named Timothy. And Paul brings him in and he begins to disciple Timothy, to groom Timothy to to take his place, to do what he does. Paul knew that his time was limited. And so he was going to replicate himself. He replicated himself in Timothy, in Titus, in Epaphroditus. He was going to infuse them, impart to them the knowledge, the wisdom that he had. And because Timothy was being groomed, to be like Paul, to go into synagogues, and because people knew his father was Greek, it was important that Timothy could say, yes, I'm circumcised. You know, once you're circumcised, you can say it doesn't mean anything. (laughs) But it was important for the open door that he be circumcised. And so Paul does this, again, for the sake of open doors. Because this is what this chapter is about. It's about what doors God will open. Now they're in Lystra and they decide, well, you know, maybe we should go, maybe we should go north and God closes that door. Maybe we should go west and God closes that door. So they go down to Troas and there Paul has a vision 
of a man in Macedonia saying, come help us. Actually, he's pleading, come over and help us. Now, on other occasions, we'll read that the Lord stood by Paul or the Lord spoke or the Lord sent an angel and said to Paul, but in this place, there's no angel. There's no divine word. It's just this vision. And so they conclude that the Lord wants them to go to Macedonia. Now, Macedonia was the gateway into Europe from the east. So this is the first venture going into Europe. For the most part, this is all, all ministry has taken place in the Middle East and it's been successful. But now they're going to be venturing into Europe. So as they go, they go to the number one city of Macedonia, which is Philippi. Or I had a lady who was Greek years ago say Philippi, but because we're not Greek, we're gonna say Philippi, just comes easier, but know that we know it's Philippi, but we're just going to say it the wrong way anyway. Even yeah, like we know it's Italian, but sometimes we like to say Italian just to bug people. It's just one of those things. So he's going into Philipp- Philippi, and there he is. And he goes to minister at the riverside because there's no synagogue in this city. Now, Paul's custom And what had always been an open door before was to go into the synagogue. But now there's no synagogue to go into. And so he goes to the riverside and there's women. Now remember in that society at that time, women were not esteemed. If a woman gets saved, it's like nobody got saved. (laughs) You know, remember when Jesus fed the multitudes, the disciples only recorded how many men were there. And, uh, you know, there might have been women eating. Do they eat? I mean, really? Yeah, because they're the only ones who can find things in the refrigerator. <laughs> but, you know, that's how it was in that society. So Paul had a vision of a man, and they concluded that they were supposed to go to Philippi. They get to Philippi, and it's, there's only women. And it's, it's these women that God opens their heart. He opens the heart of Lydia and her household to receive the word of God. Now, as Paul's there in Philippi, he and Silas are walking through the streets and they're, they're ministering. They're seeking to preach the gospel and evangelize. And there's a young woman with the spirit of divination that is heckling them. She is following them every place they go, screaming, yelling, these are the servants of the most high God. Listen to them. I mean, it's just this demonic voice drowning out their preaching, just following them every place they go. They can't get away from this girl. She just shows up and it's demonic. It's not pleasant. I mean, nobody wants the devil as their PR. It's just not good. Nor do they want an association like her mental capabilities because she could uh, do fortune telling would be, would be anything that they would want. My mom told me this story, and I, I think this is so interesting. When she was 19 years old, she had not yet committed her life fully to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ 
And she was with some friends of hers that she'd gone to high school with. And they were at a carnival and they decided to go to a fortune teller. And when they walked into the tent, the woman looked at the other couple and said, someday you two are gonna get married. And she even gave them a time that they get married. And they looked at each other and went, no way. And she looked at my mother and my mom said her face just grew like ugly and just. She looked at my mom with just hatred and said, nothing is going to come of your life. Your life is a complete waste. There is nothing, nothing in your future. And my mom was like, great, they're going to get married and my life is nothing. And you know, that was part of it. She's like, if my life is nothing, I might as well give it to Jesus Christ. Just give the whole thing to Jesus. And my aunt, who was her adopted sister, saw that my mom was heading the wrong direction. And she called my mom and said, I want you to come to Arizona. I want you to come to this camp that I'm having. And she called my grandmother and said, look, Kay is in a bad place right now. And I want, they called her Cat. Cat is in a bad place right now. And I want you to send Cat to Arizona. And I want her to, to come to this camp. And it was at that camp at 20 years old, that my mom gave her life to Jesus Christ. And my mom had given her life as a child, but at this place, she said, all right, Lord, you can have all the reins of my life, everything. And it was just a little less than a year that she met Chuck Smith. And she said, you know, it's so funny because I have lived one of the most rewarding, exciting lives of anyone I've ever known. And she said, I think back and the devil wanted to tell me that my life was nothing, a waste, and would go nowhere. That living life for Jesus would not be exciting. And it's been one of the most exciting things that ever happened to me. But this girl has this spirit of divination. She can see things. She knows things. She listens to demons. Demons possess her. They can look and know what's going to go on. They live in a different realm and spiritual world. And she makes money for these men who use her for their own purposes. They don't care that this, this woman is tormented, that her life is miserable. They're making money. Isn't that just how greedy people and how the world is? They don't care that lives are being destroyed by drugs or prostitution or gambling or by you know sexual immorality. They don't care. They're making money. And it's all about, in the United States right now, worldwide, things are valued by how much money they make. It doesn't matter that it causes addiction. It doesn't matter that it causes torment. It makes money. And that's where these men were at. And we're told, and I love this, Paul was annoyed. Oh, I'm so glad Paul got annoyed. Because I get annoyed sometimes too. I remember one time being in England and we were buying a car and I could tell that the salesmen were making fun of us because it said on our passports, missionaries. And Brian's just a really nice guy and he's just being nice and loving to everybody. He's not quite catching on to their jokes or what they're doing. And I got so annoyed and so angry. I looked right at the guy because he said, oh, they're missionaries, And he looked at his friend and winked and he looked back like this. And Brian's too busy signing his name to things to see what's going on. And I looked at the guy and I said, you go to church? He says, what, what, what? I said, do you go to church? He said, well, you know, I I haven't been. I said, what do you think about Jesus Christ? 
well, you know, uh, I said, what are you doing about eternity? Because you might just go to hell, you know? I was mad. And I said, you know, you don't have a guarantee for one more hour or one more day on your life. And you know all the bad things you've done and all the people you've made fun of. You know. And I said, and Jesus Christ is offering you forgiveness right now and will clean the slate or else you will go to hell and pay for every wrong thing you've ever done. So I want to ask you again, where do you go to church? And he looked at me and goes, I, I might just show up at yours. I said, you better. I'll be looking for you. And Brian looks at me and he's like, I've never seen this side of you. And he's like, wow, what a spirit of boldness has come upon you. No, it was a spirit of annoyance. I was so annoyed. Don't you go, you know, making fun of my husband. You know, even if it does come out like, go to church. You know, I mean, same thing, you know, the mother bear thing. The spirit of the mother bear was upon me. But, you know, Paul's annoyed. And so he turns and he looks at this girl and he speaks directly to the demon and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. We're told within that hour, she's delivered from the demon. The profiteers get so angry at this that they go and they grab Paul and Silas. They take him before the authorities and the magistrates. The authorities and the magistrates, they are so... um, Uh, so mixed up and confused and all they know is they've got this riot starting that without thinking they order Paul and Silas to be beaten with rods and we're told that many stripes were laid on them with these wooden rods and then they give Paul and Silas over to this jail jailer and they said secure them so this jailer obviously an overachiever he takes them into the darkest part of this prison and he secures their feet in stocks and leaves Paul and Silas there. Now, in those days and most times, and if you've ever been to the Mamertine prison in Rome, which you can actually go to and see, most prisons were caves. That's how most prisons were because only caves were secure. And the further that you go into the cave, the darker it got. Later when we read, you know, the the jailer will call for a light to go find Paul and Silas. It was that dark. He takes him into the darkest part, the most inner, deepest part of this cave. Now, this is a cave where prisoners are held. No doubt there's screaming, there's cursing, there's bad language, there's criminals, there's a dangerous element. It's dark. In those days, they would put straw on the floor. So this is, you know, there's no restrooms they're going to. So there's a horrid stench. They're never cleaned out because they're prisoners. They're they're treated with less regard than animals. And this is where they're put. The stocks were not like what we think of as a ball and chain. In those days, the stocks could be six to eight inches. And the prisoners' feet were put into them. And then they were fastened around them so that the prisoners were left to Stand. They couldn't sit. They couldn't kneel. They had to stand. And it was a punishment because they could not relax in prison. So here they are beaten with these rods, contusions all over their bodies, unable to move at all with these stocks on their legs, having to stand up. Absolute misery. 
And at that point, Paul begins to take inventory of his life and say, why am I here? This is a terrible place. And he and Silas begin to have a pity party and just talk about how unfair it is to serve the Lord and to be in circumstances like this. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was talking about me. Because when we go to prisons like this and we go into situations like this, immediately we go, where did I go wrong? What did I do? Or what did somebody else do that I'm in this place? Now think about it. If Paul was going to find fault, he could say, I shouldn't have fought with Barnabas. John Mark is a good kid. Why did we have this split? He could have said, Maybe that vision wasn't from the Lord after all. Maybe I should have tried a little harder to go to Bithynia. Maybe I wasn't meant to be here. Remember, they concluded that the Lord told them, or this was the Lord. Maybe that vision wasn't from the Lord. He could have thought that way. Or why do I get annoyed? I'm always in trouble whenever I get annoyed. Why didn't I just let that girl alone? You know, we can always find so many reasons. We can always find fault. Why? Because we're not perfect. Neither was Paul. And God has never asked for perfection from any of us. That's not a requirement for his blessing. That's not a requirement for his deliverance. That's not a requirement for his help or for salvation. Perfection. Because he knows you can never do it. You can't. Try as hard as you can. You are never going to reach perfection. Here is Paul. He's gotten in a fight with Barnabas. He's gotten annoyed. And here he is in prison. But what does he choose to do? Does he go introspective? No. No. One of our problems is that we are too introspective. We think about ourselves too much and we put the focus on ourselves too much, especially when we're in prison, especially when we're in stocks, especially when we're in pain or discomfort. We start going introspective. And what does that lead to? Depression, doesn't it? I mean, when I start thinking about Cheryl, I get depressed. Do you know that Cheryl is really aging fast? She doesn't have the energy she used to. She's not in as good a shape as she used to. And she finds lines even on her fingers. It's like so weird. They're showing up every place. You know, Cheryl's looking at her grandkids that she used to play with going, wow, you guys really move fast and a lot. I'm kind of tired. Cheryl has all these limitations. She gets sick to her stomach when she sees trash bags on the side of the road and it's 23 degrees. And she says, go without me. Cheryl doesn't do nights very well at all. Anything after seven is like her brain is dead. Everything's going by subconscious. You know, I have so many limitations. I have so many faults. And if I go introspective, I can't find one reason why God should love me. I can't find one reason why Jesus died on the cross for me. I can't find any reason why he should bless me or love me or deliver me or be so good to me or give me Brian Broderson as a husband or why I should live in my house or have my wonderful pillow. I can't even find a reason for my pillow. My pillow is like one of my best friends. I love my pillow. It goes with me every place. 
but I don't deserve my pillow. I really don't deserve the least of God's blessings. But does that stop him? Does he say, you know what? She doesn't deserve it. Give it to that lady. She's been a lot better than Cheryl. No, he keeps giving and giving and giving and giving. Honey's so good. I just keep saying, Lord, I don't deserve this. I don't even trust him enough with his goodness. When he's being good, I'm like, okay, when's this going to stop? How long are you going to keep this up? Because I don't deserve it, right? And I, you know, I'm, I'm going through a situation. I know you delivered me every single time for the last 53 years, but you know, there's always a time. No, God is absolutely faithful and nothing depends on me. I say all this to say when you're in the cave, when you're in the prison, when you're in the stocks, it's not the time to go introspective. It is the time to do what Paul and Silas did. It's the time to look up. We're told that they were praying and singing hymns in the prison. What were they praying? I believe they were interceding for Philippi. I believe that they were praying for that city and for the salvation. Maybe they were even praying for the jailer. Maybe they were praying for the other prisoners. Hymns. They were singing hymns. Now, hymns are not just a song. They weren't just singing. And it's not just praise. In the early church, because most of the people in the early church were illiterate, they couldn't read. In order for them to know the word of God, in order for them to know doctrine, they would put it to a hymn. And they would teach the people hymns. And those were the doctrines, the deity of Christ, salvation, the work of the cross, the coming of Jesus again. All of that was put into hymns. When you read through the epistles that Paul wrote, you will often find Paul quotes some of these hymns, especially in 1 Timothy 3.16. He's saying, you know, that Jesus, that God was manifested in the flesh, died on a cross, seen of angels, you know, resurrected, seen of angels. And what is he doing? He's quoting a hymn of the early church. So Paul and Silas are praying and they are singing the gospel. They're singing about what God has done And who God is and the love of God to send his only son, Jesus. They're singing about Jesus being the Messiah. And what do we hear? The prisoners are listening. Do you think those prisoners ever heard anything like that before? They're screaming. They're cursing. They're blaming. They're probably blaming all the gods. Oh, curse Zeus. And strike Hermes. You know, they're probably going through just a litany of curses. And here are these men beaten in stocks, praying for them and singing about the goodness of God, singing songs of hope and meaning and purpose. Obviously, those prisoners were so affected because we're told when the earthquake happened and Every, every door in that prison was open and every shackle and every chain 
fell off and the prisoners could run and riot out of that prison, they just stayed right where they were. Something so grand, something so glorious was taking place that nobody was ready to move because God had come down and shown that everything that was prayed, everything that was sung was absolutely true. You see, when you're in prison and you begin to turn your attention to God and to others, you begin to intercede for others And you begin to rehearse who your God is and what he's done. Great things happen. One, others are listening. Others are watching. In fact, sometimes people can't hear the gospel when everything is going great in your life. Sometimes they need you to be still and they need to see you in hard times because it's in these hard places that they see God working on your behalf. You see, this isn't because somebody sinned. This is for the glory of God that he might be revealed who he is, what he's like. Because wouldn't you agree with me that the world has the wrong idea about our God? That they see him as a moralist. You know, he's, he's like the mean Santa Claus. Making a checklist who's naughty, who's nice. Giving out coal and sulfur. They don't see him as the God of mercy and deliverance and grace and loving kindness and joy. But sometimes when we're put in stocks and under the worst circumstances possible. And we are praying. And we are singing hymns. Everything changes. When I was in high school, I watched my mom go through the most tremendous, terrible trial of her life. It's one that we've kept secret as a family. Nobody knows, and I'm never allowed to tell. But no woman should ever have to go through what my mom went through. It was horrid. It was dark. It was terrible. She was trapped. It was a bad, bad place. And I didn't know about the trial for a really long time. And because I didn't know why she was reacting the way she was reacting, I was angry with her. And, you know, I lived in the house, but I wasn't respectful like I should have been. And one day I found out what she was going through. And I went running up to her room to tell her I was sorry. She was on her knees praying for me. Interceding for me. Praying not that God would spank me because I deserve that. But that God would bless me. That I would walk with Jesus. That I would know him. And love him. I got on my knees and I just knelt down next to her and put my arm on her shoulder and just said, I know, I know. And she looked at me and said, I never wanted you to know. 
This has nothing to do with Jesus. He loves you so much. That's what she did in her prison. She prayed for others fervently. And you know what? The chains fell off in my life. My heart was set free. The prison doors were open for me because she chose in her prison to pray for others and to sing hymns and communicate the goodness of the Lord even in hard, hard, tough times. Now, as we know, the jailer rushes in. He's about to commit suicide. You know, he's like, I can't take this. You know, he's not even in the stocks, but he knows that others are going to kill him because of what happens to the prisoners and if the prisoners are free. And he just assumes, man, if I had an open door like that and I was in that terrible prison, I'd run free. Here's a mutiny. He's responsible for it. He takes out a sword and he's about to kill himself. And Paul cries out, do yourself no harm. Could you do that? This is the guy that put you in the innermost parts of the prison. This is the guy who's responsible for the place you're at, put you in stocks. They didn't tell him put these prisoners in stocks, put them in the innermost. They just said secure them, but he's going to go the extra mile. I mean, I'd be like, do it. Plunge it deep. (laughs) Feel that pain. No. Isn't that how we are so much? I don't want to stop you. Go ahead. Do as you feel led. You don't know. He cries out, do yourself no harm. There's no vengeance. There's no need to get even. Do yourself no harm. This is it. The jailers heard who God is. Remember the prisoners heard? The jailer heard. He's heard these men praying, interceding. He's heard these men singing about who God is. And he runs in, gets on his knees and says, what do I have to do to be like you? What must I do to be saved? And here's the answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your whole household. It's amazing. What do you have to do? Believe. What else? Nothing. Believe. Everything comes from believing. Remember how Jesus said? It starts like a mustard seed. This is faith. You believe. It's so small. I'm just believing in Jesus. Yes. That he died for me. Yes. That I'm a sinner. Yes. All right. And you take that seed of faith in and then faith does the rest, doesn't it? Faith and the word of God will do the rest. They'll become the tree in you that will start bearing fruit. And Paul even begins to tell him about that fruit. Your whole household is going to be saved. This is what happens. You just believe and God will take over and do the rest for you. He'll he'll ground you in his word. He will put you in fellowship. He will sanctify you and get rid of the sin. He'll do it all. You just believe. Just know what you know about God. Know what you know and just believe it and receive it. The rest will happen. Don't we complicate it so much? When they came to Jesus in John chapter 6 and they said, what must we do to do the work of God? Jesus said this, believe on the one whom God has sent. And what else? Believe on the one whom God has sent. This is the work of God. This is the labor. Believe. And everything flows from believing in the Lord. 
And we can see the fruit immediately in this man's life. He changes from one who put men in stocks and punished people and put them in the darkest, awful place. He now is the man who brings people out of prison from a man of no mercy to a man of great mercy, from a man who punished to a man who heals. And he begins to wash, to wash their their sores and where they've been beaten. He puts food before them and he feeds them and takes them into his house. He is baptized. This is something incredible. He says, I'm going to be fully identified with you men. That's what baptism was. It was a full identification. He said, I'm going to be identified with Jesus Christ and with you men. Whatever happens to you is now going to happen to me. He must have been so relieved in the morning when the magistrate sent these officers to his house saying, oh, go ahead and let those men go free. He's like, they're off the hook. They're safe. But Paul is concerned about this jailer. And he says, oh, no, not so quickly. I want those magistrates to give me a personal apology because Silas and I are both Romans and they beat us and threw us into prison, uncondemned, untried. And every Roman, every Roman by law should receive a fair trial. You know, we were talking in group. Why did Paul pull the Roman card then and not in the riot before he got beaten? He did it to save others. Paul wasn't interested in saving himself. He did it to save the jailer and to protect the church in Philippi. Later, we find that this church in Philippi, in the book of Philippians, we find that they became, and 2 Corinthians, Paul brags about this church in Macedonia. He says that these Philippians gave beyond themselves that they were known for giving themselves first completely to the Lord and then to others for the sake of Jesus Christ. Look at that fruit. He says of this church that they cared about the people in the fellowship. Epaphroditus was one of their own. And they were worried about him because they heard he was sick. And he prayed to live just so the Philippians would have joy. The epistle written to the Philippians is known as the epistle of joy. In that epistle, Paul commends the men again and again and again for their love, for their concern for him, for their constant giving. They became the supporters of, the supporters of Paul in his ministry. That's what they, they did. What fruit came from that prison? You know, all of us are in a prison of some time. I don't know what your stocks are, the things that are making it so you can't relax, you can't sit down, you can't get comfortable, what those things are. I don't know what the stench is. I don't know what the prison is. I don't know what the bars look like. I think it's individual for each one of us, those things that are weighing so hard on us. But let me say this. This time is not the time to go introspective and to find out what you're doing wrong. Mm -mm. Because you've done so many things wrong. Where do you start? Yeah, you got annoyed. 
Yeah, yeah, you had a fight with Barnabas. Yes, you did. Yes, you misjudged John Mark. Yes, you did. Yeah, you know, you concluded that this was the will of the Lord and maybe you should have waited a little longer before setting out immediately. Maybe so, but you know what? That's not what God's interested in. He's gonna do the work that he wants to do. This is the time to go God-focused. This is the time to start rehearsing who God is and all that he's done, the person of God. And it's the time to begin to intercede for others, to pray for others, to pray for their salvation, to pray for their protection, to pray for their deliverance. Perhaps Paul was praying for Lydia and her household, that they wouldn't be hurt by what had happened to them, that they wouldn't be caught by the right. And what do we know? We know that the church of Philippi began to thrive, that it was protected, that God did work. So God will work. There will be a time of deliverance. There will be great fruit. There will be the earthquake. And it it happens so suddenly. I mean, we could get so used to the stocks after a while. Okay, this is the way life is now. And all of a sudden, there's an earthquake. And all of a sudden, the, the things that held us, they're gone. And all of a sudden, the prison doors swing wide open. There will be that time. But you're not gonna run out of there. You're going to go, this is so incredible. This jailer needs to be saved. God's going to bring you into favor. But while you're in this place, intercede. Sing hymns. I have a friend named Dawn. She's got MS. And she's, she's had it for years. She was the top nurse down in San Diego County. She's one of my favorite people in the world. She looks like Snow White. And she's just a beautiful, beautiful woman. In fact, it's her husband's second marriage. And I remember when I first met Don, I went, well, obviously he went for beauty. You know, because I'm one of those people that prejudges sometimes. And then I got to know Don and I was like, no. Dwight is a great guy. He went for the works, you know, because she's just so godly, so sweet. And she was working and she was the head of the department in nursing that she was at. And her hands felt tingly. And she, she knew something was wrong. She was diagnosed with MS. And she went into a prison. She went into a prison of being chronically ill, at a time that she was bedridden. And during that time, she chose to pray for others and to rehearse the character of God. And as God began to work in her life and touch her in an extraordinary way, as the chains begin to fall off and prison doors begin to be open, she decided to start a website and to start a Bible study for those who are chronically ill. And she began to write down everything that inspired her, everything that helped her through the darkest times of her illness. 
And she said, Cheryl, because you know, I'm, I'm talking to her. So was it nutrition? She's like, yeah, well, nutrition's part of it. Was it exercise? You know, because I'm so into my vitamin C's and I'm realizing that all they do is give me fever blisters. But nevertheless, you know, I'm just like, oh, you know, vitamins are not sustaining me. Jesus Christ is. But you know, I'm a little slow sometimes to the table. In fact, I even fasted my vitamins for a week just to show the Lord I do trust him more than my vitamins. But anyway, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm asking her all these things and she's like, yes, that's important, but that's not the most important. Yes, that's important, but that's not the most important. She said, the most important thing is to intercede for others and to worship the Lord for who he is and what he's done. She said, it has a way of lifting you beyond your illness. She said, but Cheryl, the medical community has found a direct link between praying, intercession prayer, and worship with healing. Do you know my friend is now nursing again? It's an amazing story. She's also doing one of, no, she's not doing a workshop. She's just going to one leader's lead. She's amazing though. But she, she even teaches a Bible study down in San Diego County. God has raised her up because when she was in her prison, she didn't go introspective. She went God-focused. It's not about you. I know that hurts, but it's not about you. It's not about the good things you've done. It's not about the bad things you've done. It's not about whether you get it 100% right or 100% wrong. It's about the greatness of our God, what he's already done, what he's going to do, and his goodness and what he wants to do in the lives of others. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand up. Lord, I know this is a message that you have for this church. Lord, because we've been too introspective. We've been too condemning of ourselves. We've been making it too much about us and not enough about you. So Lord, I pray that you would turn our hearts and our minds towards Jesus Christ. That Lord, this would be all about you and all about what you want to accomplish all about what you have accomplished, all about your goodness, all about your love, all about Calvary. Lord, we thank you for who you are and for your goodness. Lord, we pray that in response to your goodness, your greatness, Lord, that we would again make it all about you and that we would, by your grace, intercede for others who don't know your greatness, your goodness. Lord, work this in us, we pray, by the grace of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.